Hello and welcome to another episode of Repro Radio. My name's Taylor and it is just me this month. It's actually a girl power episode. We uh, only have female presenters and guests for this one. And what we're talking about this month is reproduction in Australian species. And I know Australian species are pretty much loved the world over. Um, They're quite bizarre. A lot of them are endemic. In fact, Did you know 80% of mammals in Australia are actually endemic? We've got this huge population of species that really only occur here. So apart from having a huge number of species that are endemic, there are definitely also a lot of reproductive oddities in Australian animals. So some notable examples come to mind. So the antichinus, which is a small marsupial species, and the males basically grow up, go about their business, and then when it comes time to mate, they put so much effort into mating that they actually die afterwards. Talk about the cost of reproduction. Then we've got our monotremes as well, so the platypus and the echidna. They're the only egg-laying mammals in the world, which is pretty wild. Today, I'm going to talk to Jane Fenelon, who is an expert on echidna reproduction, Um, and we have a great conversation, particularly about the echidna penis. We've also got, of course, a lot of macropods. They do a lot of funny reproductive things, but particularly in the males, the penis is actually located behind the testes, so really quite bizarre reproductive anatomy. And in emus, uh, the males are setting a great example by being the sole parent responsible for brooding of the nest. So just a quick peek into some of the reproductive oddities that Australian wildlife shows. So today, as I said, I'm speaking to Jane Fenelon, and we've also got an interview uh, with an ECR who actually works in conservation. So we're going to talk a little bit about kind of basic fundamental reproductive biology, as well as how we can use that knowledge to uh, conserve our beautiful Australian species. So all that is coming up. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Siva Animal Health, the makers of Regulin. For more info, check out their website, regulin.com.au. Regulin farmers get more lambs, a more even line at sale and more time for other priorities. More lambs means more money in your pocket. Call us or visit our website and get more from your sheep this year. Today, I am talking to Jane Fenelon, who is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. So welcome, Jane. Thanks for having me. No worries. So let's just start off by you telling us all a little bit just about yourself and how did you end up working with Australian native species? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I've always been interested in wanting to work with animals from a very young age, like right from when I was a little kid. 
Um, and growing up, I was either wanted to become a zookeeper or a vet. That was my two aims in life. Yep. <laughs> um, that's pretty much what I was going for. Um, yeah, so when I got to like end of school and was applying for university, I did apply for vet, but I didn't get in because you, they only take, for Melbourne University, they only take 10 people or something. It's insane. Wow. Um, and you need stupidly high scores to get it. So I didn't yep. get into that. So I just ended up doing a Bachelor of Science. Mm-hmm. And going through that at Melbourne Uni, there just happened to be quite a big zoology component to it. Uh, and then when I got to honours, um, I, I, I had a lot of experience of like just applying for things and failing. So like I would apply for all the honours projects, didn't get them. Um, and But then I ticked the box that said, happy to be, consider any other projects that are on offer. Um, and through that, Marilyn Renfrey contacted me and said, are you interested in doing a project on wallabies? And I'm like, yep. Nice. And so what do you do at the moment? Like what's your main focus, would you say? So my main focus at the moment is I'm actually working with echidnas and looking at their reproduction and development because um, despite them being a very common animal in Australia, and most actually Australians would have seen one out in the wild, we know very little about their reproduction and development, and that's partly because it's only been recently that we've been able to breed them in captivity. Oh, interesting. Um, up until that, there was we'd never been able to do it, um, and so that made it really hard to actually look in detail because they're quite solitary animals and they spend a lot of time hiding away, particularly when they're pregnant. Um, but Currumbin Wildlife Sanctuary up on the Gold Coast managed to crack the code in the last couple of years and now have a breeding colony of about 20 or 30 echidnas up there. Yeah, that's amazing. So what was the secret sauce to having them <laughs> breed in captivity? Uh, so a couple of reasons. Um, one of the major ones was we turn, turned out we weren't feeding them enough. So ah, echidna's main yeah. So echidna's main diet is um, ants and termites, and that's obviously basically impossible to replicate 100% in a zoo. And so it was all about trying to find a mix that would mimic that in a zoo environment. And then we hadn't quite worked out, particularly during the breeding season, how much of a high fat diet they actually need. So there's um, echidnas at Corumban, um They get fed mid, get, they get fed most of the time a mincemeat diet. Mm-hmm. to replicate the ants and um, termites. But we actually add extra olive oil into it um, to give them a high-fat diet. And then during the breeding season, they get even more food as well. So that was part of the problem. Um, and the other problem just in really early days is it's really hard to tell the difference in sexes between echidnas. Oh, so, interesting. <laughs> they've got nothing on the outside that tells you the difference. They're the same size. If anything, females are a little bit bigger. Yep. Um, and you literally have to do it by ultrasound. And oh, so, wow. And so what are you picking up on ultrasound, the ovaries? Uh, the testes. Oh, right. And you can only pick it up really in the breeding season too because the testes yep. get a lot bigger in the breeding season. So we think a lot of the times in the early days they were putting like two males or two females together <laughs> and wondering why they weren't breeding. <laughs> that might be a problem. <laughs> Could be the problem. Um, and then for the few times they actually did manage to get some pregnancies, the mums just couldn't keep on hold of them. Like it, they didn't, didn't survive because they didn't have enough energy, basically. They put mm. on a lot of fat, we've discovered too, in the breeding season in preparation. So interesting. I mean, you know, you look at the different species that are, that are kind of in captivity and there's a huge range in terms of how much we know about their reproductive biology, how much we know about, I guess, their general physiology in terms of stuff like nutrition. And I guess echidnas are probably pretty far down that list. Yeah, and it's. I just found it amazing when I first heard this. I'm like, surely we know stuff about echidnas. Like, isn't that a thing? Right. 
So, yeah. I mean, Stuart Nickel and Peggy Rismiler have done a lot of work in the wild, but it's really hard to follow echidnas because one of the things they do is when they lay their egg into the pouch, they basically find a nice hole or a log to stay in and don't move for 10 days. Right. Like, they don't leave to eat. They don't poo. They don't urinate. Yeah. Like they basically hibernate for those 10 days while they're incubating the egg in the pouch. Mm-hmm. So trying to track that and find an echidna during that time and then actually to follow it while it's got the young in the pouch as well is really difficult. Give us a little bit of, of information about what the echidna breeding cycle actually looks like. You know, you, you've said they're quite solitary animals. So how, I guess, do they come together? What does mating look like? And then what does the overposition and, and kind of development of the young look like after that? The breeding cycle starts around June, July and goes up until October. Um As I mentioned, all echidnas are solitary except during mating and during the breeding season what happens is that one female gets followed around by a whole lot of males. So they form what's known as these echidna trains. So it's the only time you'll actually see more than one echidna at a time and it's normally one female and she can be followed up to about like 11 males, I think is the record, following (laughs) her in a line all around and they're competing with her to try and breed with her. Um, And then once she actually does get pregnant, we've worked out the pregnancy itself actually in the uterus is around about 18 days. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after the 18 days, they lay their egg into the pouch um, and incubate the um, egg in the pouch for 10 days. And that's that period where they don't move. They just sort of stay still. Um, But then once the egg hatches, uh, the young actually will stay in the pouch um, and it'll stay in the pouch for around about 50 days. And during that time, it's just suckling milk. Um, at this point, the mum's active again, so she's wandering around with the echidna in, in her pouch. Um, after about 50 days, the young actually starts getting too big for the pouch, and it's also about the time where she's, um, it starts growing spines. So right. <laughs> the mum understandably boots it out, yep. um, and from then on, the young stays in a burrow, So, and then the mum comes back and feeds it intermittently, and it gets weaned, depending on location, but around about 150 to 200 days after hatching. Um, and they're very much like marsupials when they're first hatched. Like they look very similar to a newborn joey. Yeah, that makes sense. And so any idea about what happens then for the offspring in terms of how long it takes them to reach sexual maturity after that? Quite a long time. So the other thing we've worked out is the kidneys are really long lived. We've got a kidneys at Corumban we think are 40 or 50 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they're still breeding. Um, but sexual maturity... The keepers at Corumban say the earliest for females is probably around three years, four years, um, and males probably about the same, possibly even longer. So wow. they're juveniles for a long time. Yeah, really interesting. And it's it's kind of crazy thinking about, you know, when you compare them with rodents, for instance, where they've got kind of the short gestation or a similar length gestation, but then they're kind of out of – they they get weaned and then they, they start breeding straight away, but they've obviously got a much shorter lifespan as well. So yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting model for reproduction because it just is so very different to it's all of so the weird. other species. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's definitely part of the attraction, I think, for people being so in love with Australian animals. One thing that I wanted to talk about a lot today was diapause because it's something that you've worked on a lot and I think it's something that is really key to our Australian species and what makes them unique but what also makes them really successful. So give us a bit of an idea of what the general definition of diapause is in terms of reproduction. 
Yeah, so dipoles is basically my first love. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, so embryonic dipoles is this um, concept where some mammals are able to pause their pregnancies for a period of time and then start them back up again. Um, this occur it's occurs in about 130 mammals worldwide, but it is particularly predominant in Australian mammals. So from what we know, all but three kangaroo and wallaby species do dipoles as a normal part of their reproduction. Um, and this normally occurs at the blastocyst stage of development. So only when the embryo is about 80 to 100 cells big, and it's when it's free floating in the uterus just before it attaches to the uterus and starts to form a placenta. And this can range from um, the mouse. In the mouse, you can get dipoles, and it can last from a week uh, up until the Tamar wallaby is the longest, and that can it can be paused for up to eleven months. Wow, and, it's so. kind of insane, isn't it? Thinking it it gets into the realm of science fiction when you talk about basically suspended animation. For sure, yeah, they're definitely going into stasis for a very long period of time, and then they're perfectly fine. There's two reasons. Either it's because for the wallabies at least and a lot of the kangaroo species, they essentially have a backup pregnancy. So mm -hmm. what happens is that they'll give birth to the young in the pouch and then within 24 hours of doing that, they'll mate again and then get pregnant. So while they've got the young in the pouch, they've got a backup pregnancy. And if for whatever reason they lose the young in the pouch, the new pregnancy will start back up again. Um, and then you've got the other group of animals uh, do it where um, it's actually seasonal. Mm -hmm. So it's more like for the mink, for example, they'll mate um, at the start of March, but then the embryo will be paused for about a month. Um, and that's to do with when the uh, young is actually weaned. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So it's more about kind of environmental adaptation. Yeah. I'm really interested in, I guess, the mechanism of how diapause works. So is it something that's purely to do with embryo function or is it endometrium or is it a bit of both? bit of both, I would say. We're still yeah. trying to work this out. We know, now we know that it's essentially the, at least in the wallaby species that I work on, um, it's the prolactin that gets secreted from the sucking of the pouch young that's inhibitory to the corpus luteum. Um, and actually that stops the progesterone production that would normally occur and that set means the uterus becomes dormant. It doesn't follow through with the rest of pregnancy. And then the uterus somehow tells the embryo uh, to go into diapause as well. Um, so it's definitely from the uterine side of things. We know up until basically the control of the uterus, but we don't know how the uterus is controlling the embryo. And now there's a lot more research coming out where the embryo itself can actually communicate with the uterus as well. When you get to the other end, when the embryo is reactivating from diapause, then it's definitely a two-way signaling mechanism between the two of them, with the embryo going, hey, I'm ready, and the mum going, yep, okay. And any idea what molecules actually control that? Like, is, are we thinking kind of small RNAs? Yeah, well, that's what, actually, I've just got some grant to look at that, actually. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Very small grant. So there's been a little bit of work in mice, but no one's really looked at in detail. Um, it's definitely like we've, we started off looking at hormones, then we moved on to growth factors. Um, I've done a bit of work with polyamines, which are small molecules formed from amino acids, and they definitely seem to be involved. Um, we used to think it was just one factor that would control dipoles, but now it looks like it's a lot more complicated than that and it's definitely going to be more factors. So, for example, I can inhibit polyamines and send embryos into diapause, but not completely, like mm -hmm. it's not fully doing it. 
And so now we're on the search for like, okay, so what else is going on here? Like what else is controlling it? And yeah, microRNAs and definitely, because there's definitely exosomes and things happening as well in the uterus. Um, so yeah, microRNAs is definitely something I want to look into more. So as per usual with any story in biology, it's much more complicated than we initially hoped it would be. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and so talking about diapause, why do you, you obviously love it, why do you think it's really important in the broader context of, I guess, understanding reproductive biology? Yeah, so I think it's a really fascinating process, but I also think it's really useful. So during diapause, what's happening is essentially you've got because um, the uterus, because the uterus becomes dormant and then really drops down the secretion. So basically, the only thing that's happening is just whatever is essential to keep the embryo alive. You haven't got all those other factors happening, which is normally involved in like promoting growth or um, doing the other developmental things. And so you've got like this system. So like in the Tamil Wallaby, you've got something that somehow they managed to keep this embryo alive and happy for eleven months at a time on a very dormant uterus. Like it's a pretty you basically just got an embryo free floating. So if we can understand, um, there's, well, there's two things. There's, um, one is by looking at the diapause embryo, we can really have a look at what is actually the essential factors that keep an embryo alive and healthy. Uh, and then the other thing is there's a lot of applications in terms of like culture media. Um, how do you actually keep an embryo alive and happy? What's the essential ingredients? And that's sort of what diapause can tell you. Um, so one of our grand plans is actually to come up with some sort of, like instead of using cryopreservation for embryos, you could actually just put them into diapause, so just keep them in the incubator. Um, and then that would get rid of a lot of the um, issues with freeze-thawing and things like that. It would certainly simplify a lot of things that go on in, in human reproductive medicine, you know, and the ridiculous storage bills that they pay for liquid nitrogen to be on, on demand 24-7. So, yeah, that it would be amazing if, if that was kind of the way forward in terms of embryo storage. Yeah. And also we're thinking like with conservation biology too, you could do this in the wild, like you don't need a liquid nitrogen storage. Absolutely, yeah. So just making it more practical to be used in the field. Yes, for sure. You have to tell me the story of how, <laughs> how you ended up with a paper talking about echidna penis anatomy. Yeah, so that happened because um, my colleague Steve Johnson, who's also involved in the Echidna Project, had um, tried to look into this before because he looks a lot more into male anatomy. Um, and you can't electroejaculate an echidna, but luckily we managed to get an echidna up at Corumban who's basically being conditioned to being handled. As I mentioned earlier, all the reproductive organs internal, including the penis, and the penis just happens to be sitting just below um, where you're holding him. <laughs> And so basically what you can do with him is actually sort of massage him in the general area where the penis is and he will get an erection for you on cue. Oh, that's very handy. It's very <laughs> handy. Uh, and for those who don't know, the echidna pe penis is just really bizarre. So it actually has four glands heads at the end of it. It was like one tube with four glands and it looks like four rosettes it's been described as coming out. And what we found with this uh, echidna, when you um, – encouraged him he would actually get an erection but he would only use two sides would become erect at one point right and then you could actually do this to him in he would keep doing this you could keep um uh getting to have an erection and we could do it up to 10 times in a row and what was really interesting is he would switch sides 
Yeah. So he would go, he would get an erection on one side, on the two sides, and then the next time it'd be the next two sides, and then he'd go back to the original sides. Yeah, interesting. And so this had never been seen in an animal, animal before, um, and we really just wanted to go and have a look at that and see how on earth that was happening. Um, our initial thoughts was maybe there was some sort of valve mechanism that was sort mm-hmm. of shunting it towards one side or the other. Um, but what I ended up working out was that it's actually more, essentially, if you look at the inside of the penis, it's almost acting like two completely separate penises. Yeah, and right. Sort of, and so by directing the blood supply down one side rather than the other, that's how you sort of can control the two sides. Um, and because we thought as well, because we only had this one example of an echidna getting erection, we thought maybe it was just weird to him. But now we actually think it's a real thing. We think this is what all echidnas would do. And any idea what, I guess, the benefit would be of having these two like, separate organs? One theory is that there's quite a lot of male-to-male competition, so maybe mm-hmm. this means he can turn around and, like, back up his efforts mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that the echidna female, her uteri is split, and we have worked out that the penis is around about the right length that when you when the penis is inside the female, it's um, one side would be could could correspond with one side of the uterus. Do you know much about I guess what an echidna pregnancy looks like? Because if they've so they've got uterine horns, I guess, but they only have one offspring at a time, right? Yeah. So it's, they would only have. Um, so it's probably just like, so marsupials and things have this as well. So the they would probably, we don't know if they alternate, but we're guessing they alternate between which side of the uterus they use at one time or another. They can have twins and even triplets, um, oh, but we're not sure if those eggs stay, or all three or two or three eggs stay in the one side of the uterus or whether they, like there's one from each side. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's pretty much all we know at the moment. There, we do know the uterus does actually do some sort of secretions as well. Okay. Because yep. the echidna egg does grow during pregnancy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It it goes from, I think it's about 0.5 a millimetre and then at birth it's about 1.5. So is, so is the shell still soft while it's in the uterus? Yes, and it gets more layers laid down in the uterus during pregnancy. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, for some reason, had it in my mind that it was basically just like a chicken egg sitting in the uterus for for 10 days. Yeah. And the other thing about the kidna egg too, is it's not like a chicken egg. It's actually soft. It's like leathery. Yeah. Like a turtle egg. Yeah. So you yeah. can't crack an echidna egg. You have to tear right. it. Right. Yep. That makes sense. Oh, so they're just so weird. Oh, very weird. <laughs> I've just submitted a paper on the echidna egg tooth too, which is another whole weird story. Oh, yeah, right, because they, I mean, I assume they would have that to get out of it, right? To get out of the egg, yes. Yeah, amazing. The one thing that I wanted to kind of finish on was, I guess, just to get your thoughts about where you think the most exciting research in this area is and where you think it's really lacking. Like, where do we need to go in the future in terms of our understanding of Australian species? I think we just need to uh, focus our research efforts more on them. There's an amazing amount we can actually learn from them. A lot of the work in my lab in terms of their sexual development on the wallaby has actually then informed us on human reproduction. Like there's just an amazing wealth of information you can get from these guys that can act like things like dipoles could eventually inform human assisted reproductive technologies. Um, 
I think they just, they've been underappreciated up until this point. And I just think there's a lot of information and benefit that we can get from actually looking at our animals that are right on our doorstep. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the last couple of years, I guess I've heard a little bit more about people kind of using these animals as research models. Can you comment at all on on what it's like to keep these animals in, in captivity, you know, compared to, I guess, our rodent models or, or maybe other domestic species? Yeah, so that can definitely be a bit of a downside. Um, echidnas do require quite heavy monitoring. We are potentially looking into setting up a colony, but they basically require 24-hour video surveillance uh, to know when they're actually mating and uh, getting right. pregnant and things. So it's quite intensive. Um, Tama wallabies are a, a bit easier. Uh, um, you do have to go collect them from the wild yourself. So we have multiple field trips to Kangaroo Island to catch our Tama wallabies, which are always fun. Uh, but then we do have a breeding colony of those in Melbourne. Um, but that does require a full-time research assistant looking after those. Uh, but then there's other people like, so Andrew Pask has been setting up a Dunnut colony. Um, so they're basically for people who don't know, like um, a carnivorous mouse. And they're able to basically be kept in the mouse house. So Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and he, he used to work on Tama Wallabies and he chose the data for that exact reason that he could try and set it up as a model. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely possible. And there's some extra challenges, but I think the benefits outweigh. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's worth as well people just thinking about collaborations, right? You know, if if this is something that it's not feasible for you, for you to set up for your lab, maybe reach out to someone that you know does work on these species and, and see what work you can do together. Exactly. So, I mean, we work with Corumban with the live animals, but they also have a, a veterinary surgery on there where they get a lot of wild injured echidnas brought in and if they can't fix them then um, they have to be euthanized so we're creating quite a big bank of echidna adult tissue as well and we because we know we might they're so rare we try and collect as much as possible so yeah there's definitely possibilities all right well thanks so much for joining us today jane it was an absolute pleasure oh thank you it was fun <laughs> We're back with what the people want. We've got Repro News. What's happening in November, Naomi? All right. So we've got um, a very exciting uh, webinar that's going to be coming up in November held by the Reproductive uh, Reproductive Health Australia. So if you haven't heard about Reproductive Health Australia, it's an amazing organisation that ad advocates and publicises reproductive research in Australia. So just one of the things that they do. So if you ever want to become a member, check out their website. But we're going to be having their first webinar. It's on the 15th of November at 7pm. So check out their website if you want to register and join. One of their main speakers, or at least I think their only speaker, is um, Professor Rob Brooks. And to entice everyone into uh, attending this webinar, we have a short video from Rob himself. Hi. I'm Rob Brooks. I'm an evolutionary biologist at UNSW in Sydney, and I'm super excited to be giving the Reproductive Health Australia webinar on the 15th of November. It's really about some of the topics I cover in my new book, Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmakers. It considers what happens when our evolved human natures and all of those things that make us social and sexy creatures uh, smash headlong into 21st century technologies like robotics, virtual reality, and most important of all, artificial intelligence. I hope to see you there. 
And our next conference that's going to be coming up in at least in January, so it's a little while away, um, abstracts have closed, um, but the Fertility Society of Australia and New Zealand, their annual conference held in January, on January 29th to the 2nd of February. That's going to be in Sydney. Registration is still open though. And just a reminder as well that SRB is going to be holding their conference as well. They have uh, changed it to a virtual conference. Um, So that means that everyone across Australia and across the world can attend, which is excellent. Um, And that is in uh, this month, November. And some shameless self-promotion from yours truly. If you would like to see or listen to a talk on ram seminal plasma uh, looking at its physiological roles and how we can exploit those to improve artificial breeding in sheep you will want to go ahead and register for srb oh girl i am absolutely gonna register one of my favorite topics (laughs) how did you know Yeah, no, it's going to be it's going to be an amazing conference as they always are with SRB. So definitely be sure to register. I believe you can register up until the date. Um, We did uh, give the dates for SRB a few episodes back. um, So just uh, check out our website um, for SRB. Um, In terms of our upcoming awards, um, we have a couple for our um, researchers in Australia in wildlife. Uh, So one of these is the Nature Nature Foundation grant. So they offer grants across several categories. Um, One of the things that I notice on their website is that the grant proposals that tend to align with their key priorities um, or their list of potential research projects, one of these comes under FAUNA, is more likely to achieve funding success. So definitely make sure that your proposals align with this. Um, The grant applications are closed for this year, but they're reopening up in March 2022. So you have plenty of time to be able to get your applications in and have a good think about what you'd like to do. Our second uh, grant that's coming up, these ones is actually for honours and postgraduate students um, across universities in Australia. So any um, projects that are within the field of environmental sciences, wildlife sciences and management, as well as zoology, um, for as I said, honours and postgraduate students, they can apply for this grant. It's up to five grand. Um, And that five grand can be put towards um, equipment for um, field studies, um, consumables, even to attend a conference, um, hopefully by them, fingers crossed, overseas, which would be great. Um, But uh, these will be open sometime in 2022. So I'll pop the, we'll have the website up on Repro Radio. So check that out so you can keep an eye out for the dates as well. And these these grants that are aimed at our honours and our PhD students are so, so important for students mm-hmm. to start thinking about because these are the kind of things that you can put on your CV that really hold a lot of weight. It, it shows that you're able to, you know, string together the ideas and the basis for a research project <laughs> and really clearly communicate what it is that you want to research. So uh, definitely worth thinking about if that's where you're at right now. Lastly, for our publication of the month, this one uh, very much excited me when I saw it on Twitter because one thing that's always fascinated me is pregnancy and seahorses. Oh, yes. yes. I know exactly where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a lovely paper has come out in the journal Placenta, um, and this paper looked at the uh, structural changes that occur in the brood pouch of um, male seahorses during gestation. Um, So the paper is the structural changes to the brood pouch of male pregnant seahorses facilitate exchange between father and embryos. 
very nice little paper and uh, yeah, just such an incredible little area of science. So definitely check that one out. It is a beautiful paper with once again, beautiful figures. Uh, Mm -hmm. I very distinctly recall there being some very cute uh, figures of seahorses, seahorse embryos in there. You can see them Uh, all tucked up inside the pouch. Very cute histology. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Especially, I mean, I've seen videos of when the, like the male, like pumps out these little baby seahorses. It just, honestly, it blows my, nature just blows my mind. I wish that someone would take the time to figure out how we can make human men do this. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Create some human, some human male brood pouches so that uh, somebody else could carry the babies. I mean, look, we're, you know, getting to the stage where we can potentially grow babies in an artificial womb. So just strap that bad boy in a male. There we go. That's true. I like that because it's a bit of a compromise between the total in vitro and Mm -hmm. something that's maybe a bit more natural. Okay. So we need somebody to make an artificial uterus that can be worn kind of like a baby Bjorn. It's like a bum bag. Like a bum bag. (laughs) I'm loving this idea. I, think I feel so like too. this this could be I see NHMRC grant, ARC grant. I'm not personally vo- volunteering to do this, but I think somebody <laughs> needs to. Yes. Yes. So anyone out there who is looking for their next research project, an idea is budding right here. Here right you here. go. Already on done. Repo Radio. On Repo Radio <laughs> you heard is where, it first. It, where it's at. <laughs> Oh, well, thanks for your time this month, Naomi, and we will see you again soon. See ya. Today I am talking with Marissa Parrott. She's a reproductive biologist who's currently applying the skills and knowledge from her PhD into conserving Australian wildlife at what pretty much sounds like the dream job for wildlife at uh, Zoos Victoria. And I believe she's also an honorary research associate at the University of Melbourne. So welcome, Marissa. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Kelsey. Do you want to just sort of introduce what you do and I guess what a normal day in your work life actually looks like? Sure. I'm extremely lucky, I think, because I do have my dream job at Zoos Victoria. And part of that excitement that I have with my job is that every day is different. So on any given day, I might be out in the field working up in the Alps with animals like mountain pygmy possums, in forests in Tassie with Tasmanian devils, on grasslands with bandicoots. I might be in a lab looking at samples under a microscope or in a meeting talking about recovering animals and strategy or working on my computer with data analysis and long-term strategic planning for conservation. So every day is really different. I've been very lucky to be able to work from home during lockdown and continue that really important conservation work. I miss going into the field, but I'm looking forward to getting back to that soon. Amazing. Well, it sounds like you would never get bored in that. Uh, Definitely a dream job. Do you find a lot of the skills that you actually sort of learned in your PhD or that you developed during that time, it sounds like you do use those in your job? I use so many of the skills that I learned during my PhD and my postdoc still to this day. 
so many years later. So I did my PhD on female mate choice in a beautiful little animal called an agile antichinus, a small carnivorous marsupial, and then moved on to other marsupials with that kind of work. So it's using females' natural behaviors to increase breeding success and the outputs we have from our captive breeding programs. And I still do that kind of work at the zoos with animals like mountain pygmy possums and eastern barred bandicoots. I still work in genetics and I work out in the field with monitoring and surveying our reintroduced populations. But I've also learned new skills as well, using new technology like infrared cameras and acoustic monitors and drones, working in things like wildlife nutrition and having the best kind of foods possible for animals after catastrophes like the Black Summer bushfires. So while I still use those same skills that I learned during my PhD, I've learned so many other skills. Yeah, unreal. I think you you can't really replace that real life experience, huh? Do you think there are key areas of research or new technologies, for example, you've mentioned use of drones and infrared cameras? Are these areas that you think are going to have quite a big impact on conservation outcomes and actually doing this work in the next couple of decades? I think the new areas that we're moving into with new technology, with new genetic techniques are going to be so important in the future. And the interesting thing with conservation is every species is different. And so we need a lot of science to be able to know how best to, for example, mitigate threats for species. And with each species being different, we need more research in captive breeding and reintroduction to help those animals. So science is so important and new technology can really help us with that coming up. Do you have any advice for younger researchers or students looking at entering this field? Because I'm sure that this career pathway is kind of associated to its own sort of challenges um, in actually sort of getting to, to this level of the dream job that you're currently in. This is the kind of job I always wanted from ever since I was a small child. According to my parents, I used to say I wanted to work in zoos and breed baby animals. And and so it's really exciting to be able to work in zoos and, and work in conservation and see those beautiful animals go back out to the wild where they belong. It is a long road and a lot of work to get there. But I think if you follow your passions, you're absolutely able to do so. And one of the best things that I did that I often suggest others do is to volunteer because there are so many great things you can learn from volunteering on different conservation and wildlife projects. You have new skills that you can add to your CV. You can find out what sort of areas you might want to work in in the future and you can network and get to know people working in that area that may be able to help you out. A bit more of a, a reprobiology trivia point. Have you got anything really strange or really cool that you you've seen in your career, given that you work with so many different and really interesting Australian species. I've gotten to see so many amazing types of different reproduction. And one of the favorite groups I work with are our beautiful marsupials in Australia. We have so many different amazing marsupials that often people haven't even heard of. And one of the best things about them is they have a really short pregnancy. So if a human were to be pregnant, it's nine months, something like an Asian elephant, it can be nearly two years. But our shortest pregnancies of any known mammals are found in the marsupials. In the striped face Dunart, they're pregnant for only 10.7 days. In animals like the eastern barred bandicoot, it's only 12 and a half days and mountain pygmy possums, just 13 days. So I think it's such a great thing to learn about and they are just so much smarter than we are. Does that play into any of your conservation strategies, these short pregnancies? 
it certainly helps with the breeding programs to be able to see very quickly if the pairings that you've made for an animal are appropriate, if an animal is pregnant. It really helps with things like research. And so being able to have those births really quick to know what you're able to return to the wild in the future is always a real thrill. And do you think you want to stay in this field and stay in this job? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been my dream for so long and I just love the work I'm doing. When you get to see that you've made a difference, for example, the Eastern Barred Bandicoot I've mentioned was until just last month classed as extinct in the wild and working with partners, working with a breeding program and a recovery program for over three decades, we've been able to take the bandicoots off the extinct in the wild list and to be able to celebrate them being safe behind fences, on islands and with places like guardian dogs. So when you get those wins, when you make that difference, it's the best feeling in the world. And I'm really passionate about doing this into the future and hopefully helping a lot of other species along the way too. Amazing. Well, it's been really, really interesting to hear about your work. And it's it's great to know that we've got these science skills that are making such a tangible impact in such an important area. Look, thank you so much for, for chatting with us today. Um, and I look forward to seeing what else you do in the future. Thanks so much, Kelsey. Well, that was a blast. I hope you've all enjoyed it as well. Uh, we, I think, got a nice view on kind of where we're at, at understanding reproductive biology in some of the most interesting and well-loved Australian species uh, and how much further we really have to go, but also how useful this research really can be, even outside of just conserving those species that we're talking about. Next month, we've got our final episode for season one, where we're going to be talking about the impacts of endocrine disruptors. It's a really popular topic. Um, it's something that a lot of people research around the world, and it's something that's so, so important for us all to understand and be aware of as well. So I hope you can join us for that. Thanks for joining us. For more information about our guests today or Repro News, check out the show notes for this episode on our website. If you've got a question for our next guest, send us an email or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Repro Radio is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Pinney, and executive produced by Simon DeGraff. Repro News by Naomi Bernicic, ACR Spotlight Reporting by Kelsey Poole, Production Assistance by Jess Rickard, Maddie Vanderhoek, and Sophie War, and Audio Design by Dylan Gerrily.